George Washington University, the project on Middle East political science. On this week's episode of the Middle East political science podcast, we'll talk to Zayed Al-Ali about his new Cambridge University Press book, Arab Constitutionalism, The Coming Revolution. We'll also talk to Marcine Al-Shamari about her new article, Religious Peacebuilding in Iraq, Prospects and Challenges from the Hausa. And then we'll talk to James Shires of Leiden University about his work on digital authoritarianism. Thanks for listening to the program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Zayed Al-Ali of the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, an author of the new book, Arab Constitutionalism, just published by Cambridge. Zayed, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mark. So it's been a long time since I've seen a book this rich on uh, the question of Arab constitutions. Tell us a little bit about it and uh, you know, what you were trying to accomplish with it. So, um, so the, the book consists of two parts. Um, it, uh, it starts with a first part, which is uh, kind of like a, a survey of eight countries that were impacted by the 2011 uprisings, um, including Sudan. I should just say that Sudan, obviously, I mean, the, uh, there wasn't much of an uprising that took place in 2011 in Sudan, but there was a very serious uprising in starting in late 2008-18 and uh, leading into 2019. Uh, so I include Sudan in that list of countries, even though it's uh, from, from a time perspective, it's a bit different. Um, I also discussed some other countries without giving them specific sections or chapters, including my own country, Iraq, Lebanon, and Syria. And that, that, that first part of the book is, it's, it's, uh, it consists of you know, sort of like a historical analysis, a description, of what it is that took place. And also it stands, each chapter or each section stands as its own analysis of what happened in each country and why things turned out the way that they did and what the dynamics were for each of the negotiation processes that, uh, that took place in those countries. Um, so th- that, that's, that's more or less the first part. The, fr- the second part is, 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 is consists of an analysis of what took place you know, w- w- with, with a view to analyzing the changes that were introduced and the manner in, in which they were introduced. So, um, so it won't come as a surprise that uh, despite the revolutionary demands that many people were making at the time, you know, the people who participated in the uprising back in 2011, that I, you know, I, I don't conclude that a constitutional revolution took place. I think it's fairly obvious to most observers that, uh, that we didn't experience a constitutional revolution in the, in the region. And, um, and I tried to explain why that is. And one of the reasons why that is, is because to this day, and, and to this day, meaning even until today, late August uh, 2021, um, people in the region, mainly elites, and also many observers and members of the general population, in my view, still misunderstand what a constitution can and should do. Um, in this day and age, they still think that the main purpose of a constitution is to organize a relationship between different political forces, including political forces that control institutions, which is important. I'm not saying that it's that's not something that a constitution should do, but one of the things that they don't do, um, one of the things that the constitutions of the region don't do is organize a relationship between the individual and the state. So this is exclusive focus on the horizontal relationship at the elite level, at the top between political forces, institutions, and so on and so forth. But if you're not a member of one of those institutions or, or political forces, if you're on the margins of society, then basically you get nothing out of this constitutional arrangement, which um, might have been workable 
50 years ago, 100 years ago, when the proportion of people that were living on the margin of society was much, much lower. But where now in some countries, the proportion of people who don't benefit at all and don't even figure in any way in the constitutional arrangement makes up to something like 90% of the population, then it becomes, first of all, unworkable from a governance perspective. It makes it undemocratic. Um, and third of all, it makes it a real human tragedy just to see so many people suffer, um, suffer so much inequality and poverty. And for people who are negotiating the texts, um, not to spend any time thinking about them. So, so, so and, and the last thing that the book does is that it also includes a discussion of the types of thing that I think would need to happen um, in any subsequent constitutional reform uh, in order for us to really consider that something major had changed and for the new constitution to emerge from that type of process to be considered to be democratic. Uh, so hopefully that'll be something that happens in Sudan in the next couple of years, let's see. So before we get into some of the issues and some of the countries that you talk about, can you give us a little bit of the background on, on what you did as you were preparing for the book? Because you come at this from a rather unique perspective. Yeah, sure. So, so you know, I should just say that, you know, so I'm, I'm affiliated, you know, with uh, or have been affiliated with different academic institutions in the past, but I'm not a full-time academic. So I'm, you know, I'm a lawyer and I, I um, you know, I do, I spend a lot of my time giving advice, legal advice. So I work for the, for, for the Institute, um, the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, IDEA. Um, but, and, you know, they pay me, et cetera, et cetera. But what I do most of the time is that I'm uh, out in, the, in, in a lot of these different countries. I'm interacting with constitutional negotiators, with leaders of political movements, with members of the legal profession, judges, lawyers, and others, and, you know, NGOs and civil society organizations, journalists, you know, whoever about constitutional negotiations, about um, what it is that, uh, you know, what the options may be in the different countries that, they're, that, that, that I'm engaging with, et cetera, et cetera. And right from the start, as soon as the uprising started in 2011, immediately I started engaging with a lot of these people and immediately I started gathering materials right from the start with a view to ultimately writing something about these processes that I was living through. So including, for example, immediately constitutional drafts, constitutional proposals, um, meeting notes, et cetera, et cetera. All these things I've been keeping, I have a very detailed archive of all of these issues. I mean, most of it I think I can share now publicly and I'm planning next month to put everything up on my, on my website. So I, I may take out some stuff if it's really sensitive, but by and large, I'll, I'll, I'll put out everything that I have. Um, That's fantastic so th because you mentioned that a lot of these things are just lost to history. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. So I, to my knowledge, people just don't keep records of these things, you know? So there may be individuals that, that keep these things, you know, here and there, and, you know, they keep records of them. So I can even speak about, for example, my own country's experience in 2005, and certainly not a model constitutional process, but in Iraq in 2005, um, there are records of the discussions that took place, um, but they're highly inaccessible, you know, really, really hard to access them. There's also a record of the discussions that took place in Tunisia, in the Constituent Assembly in plenary, and there's to a lesser extent in some of the committees as well, um, also not accessible, not, not easy to access. There used to be a record of the Egyptian, um, the minutes of the Egyptian meetings that took place in 2012, that used to be online. Those have all been taken, out, taken off now. And I have, I, I've kept records of all those things as well. So, so, so I, you know, I've kept those records. Also throughout the, throughout the past 10 years, what I've been doing as well is as we've been going through uh, time, every single document that I get, every single 
draft or analysis proposals and so forth, I would carry out my own analysis. I would eat some, some of it I would publish, some of it I would keep to myself, but that was always part of a process that was building up over a period of 10 years to try to formulate my own opinion about what was happening without necessarily accepting the uh, narratives, the historical narratives that people were, 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 were sharing between themselves. So some of them I accept and others I don't. Um, yeah, so I mean, by and large, that, that, that's basically the, the method. I mean, otherwise, you know, there's other stuff as well, which I, which I did while I was writing the book as well, which is some bits and pieces of history where I wasn't so familiar with in specific countries with a view to really gauging whether or not what I was reading was as important as it seemed on paper, uh, that would require, you know, uh, interacting with people uh, post facto to try to understand what, you know, whether or not they agree with my analysis as well, but also going back and looking at, you know, for example, you know, the online record as well, seeing, you know, how many uh, interviews I could find relating to that specific event, how many hits those interviews would get, et cetera, et cetera. On a lot of occasions, it would be a total mismatch between what looks very important on paper, then you get no interest at all amongst the people around you. So not so important. And sometimes it's the opposite. You just find specific events that are constantly mentioned as being extremely important. And then you just look at it on paper and just see that there's very nothing, almost nothing there. So it's really important to try to put those things into perspective. And then maybe the last thing I'll say about this, and sorry if I've gone on for too long. Oh, is that really interesting. Is, is, is that the, um, a lot of the records come from one side only, right? So the clearest illustration of that is that in Tunisia, to my knowledge, all of the first town accounts that have been published by members of the Constituent Assembly, uh, the, the body that was responsible for drafting the constitution are all part of the non-Islamist, right. more or less secular bloc, right? And all of those accounts, to my knowledge, were written in French. I'm not aware of any account that was written by the Islamist bloc in parliament. So what they've done is a great service because we have that record, but we just can't take everything that they've written as for granted. I mean, I, I believe that they believe everything that they say, but there's always different sides to these stories and there's always things that they admit to say for whatever reason, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you, you just can't just rely on that one, one side of the narrative. You know, it's really important to go through to the other side. And often you'll see that, you know, the, the contemporaneous record the documentation that exists and also the first-hand accounts, they, there's a huge mismatch. You see that the way in which they're describing events and you look at the drafts, they just don't match with each other at all. So that leads to a very, very big question mark and you know requires for a lot of analysis to try to understand what actually did happen. So you give these really rich um, uh, historical discussions then, uh, this uniquely informed discussion of many of these cases. Um, and obviously we don't have time to talk about all of them here in detail. But, you know, maybe we could talk about a couple of them um, and, you know, some of the key lessons which uh, you learned as you were studying this. Um, uh, so we were just talking about Tunisia. Why don't we keep talking about that, since that's one of the first and one of the most important of the examples? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, Tunisia is a really good uh, illustration of the um, of the risks that, that are created by constitutional processes, the opportunities that are created as well, and the limitations of the approach that were adopted by uh, the approach that was adopted by the, the by the negotiators. So uh, first, the risks. So it may be hard to remember, but um, back in 2012, the uh, political context in the Arab region was extremely different to what it is today. I mean, at that point, there was this overwhelming sense amongst many Islamist groups uh, in Tunisia and elsewhere that they were very much on the ascendancy, 
and that um, it was going to be extremely difficult to challenge their control. You know, there was Egypt, there was Libya, there was Tunisia, there was other countries as well. Um, and uh, in Tunisia at the time, you know, it was very much part of their narrative was, you know, we're the dominant force. Uh, many people don't want Sharia to be included in the constitution. However, uh, you know, we consider that it, it, it to be very important and we're, we're, we want to discuss it. So post facto now, many Islamists or le leading members of another have said post facto that, that, that they were never intending to include Sharia. That's certainly not supported by the documentary record. I mean, they definitely mentioned it very prominently back in 2012. But what's really important is that 12 months later, by the summer of 2013, the political tide had changed completely, right? Pursuant to developments in Egypt and Libya and elsewhere. And also in Tunisia, you know, the, the Nahda movement was very aware that its own popular base was shrinking in the country. Um, and at that point in time, things were looking very, very risky in Tunisia. You know, there were a couple of political assassinations that took place. There were very tense demonstrations, right? There's huge risk that the type of violence that we saw elsewhere in the region could take place in Tunisia. Now, it didn't happen. So that's led to a lot of people to say that, oh, well, in Tunisia, we've never been violent. And, you know, it's not part of our tradition and so on and so forth. I mean, tell that to the people who were killed during the uprising, right? Um, you know, violence is certainly possible at any moment in any place, not just in Tunisia and not just in the Arab region. Um, and, you know, it's, it, that, that big risk that definitely took place and definitely existed in Tunisia. So one of the really great things that the Tunisian negotiators were able to do, and it's important not to under, underestimate this, is that they were able to avoid large scale violence, that they were able to reach uh, an agreement. And one of the reasons in which one of the ways in which they did that was by being creative about uh, process, not being stubbornly tied down to an existing process. They decided to be flexible and creative with the overall goal of trying to avoid violence, right? And trying to reach an agreement. And that's a really great thing. That was really great that they did that. And it's really great that they reached an agreement. However, on the other hand, what I really didn't like, and I continue to dislike about the Tunisian process is what I mentioned earlier on, which is that you have this popular uprising, which starts in the center of the country, the very poor, impoverished uh, center of the country. And it's a, a popular uprising by people who are extremely upset about inequality and poverty and lack of opportunity in their country, right? And particularly areas that they live in. And what ends up happening is instead of having constitutional negotiation that's centered around inequality, um, it ends up being constitutional negotiation that's exclusively about how much power will be allocated to specific institutions in the country um, based on the assumption that the biggest parliamentary group, NAVA, would continue to dominate parliament. And so therefore they were arguing in favor of granting more authority and more power to parliament. And the, over, the overwhelming assumption at the time was that the president of the Republic would not be an Islamist and would be part of the quote unquote, secular camp of the country. So therefore the negotiation was almost exclusively at that time between those two different angles, how much power will be allocated to the president, how much power will be allocated to the, the, the parliament. And a very clear illustration of how the interests of the ordinary or the general population were completely ignored was the, the negotiations about socioeconomic rights. Um, so, you know, most, or if not all modern constitutions include references to social and economic rights. So that's rights, like for example, right to education, healthcare, and so on and so forth. And I realize that that might be controversial in the United States, but certainly not controversial in the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, people consider that healthcare is a constitutional right. 
Now, the distinction between different countries there, though, however, is those countries where healthcare is an enforceable right and where it's not an enforceable right, where it's just a constitutional aspiration. It's there in the constitution. It says that you have the right to healthcare, but there's actually no legal mechanism mechanism that you can use to enforce that right. So uh, uh, progressive modern constitutions will eliminate the distinction between civil and political rights and social and economic rights based on the understanding of where in developing countries, it makes absolutely no sense to give people the right to vote if they can't read or write, if they don't have enough food to, chew, to, to feed their children, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so a lot of countries have eliminated the distinction and have made it so that all of those rights are considered to be fundamental human rights and that they're all directly enforceable in the courts and through other mechanisms as well. In Tunisia, that discussion never even took place. It never took place, meaning that these people who were the very reason that allowed for this constitutional negotiation to take place between 2011 and 2014, that made it possible for these political elites to have this wrangling match about who, how much power will be allocated to the president and how much power will be allocated to the prime minister and to the parliament so on and so forth, were completely ignored in the constitution, uh, except through lip service. Just, you know, you know, really like very, very minor remodeling of provisions here and there that have absolutely no impact in practice, because in any event, all of those provisions are not directly enforceable. And that's really the tragedy of the Tunisian process. And it continues to be the tragedy today. And indeed, even partially informs the problems that we're undergoing to today now in Tunisia. Um, this whole thing that's happening. Can we talk about that just a little bit? And because generally speaking, people consider the Tunisian <laughs> constitutional process to have been a success. And yet here we are, and President Kais Saeed is, has suspended the constitution. And how do you read that as someone who was involved so much in this constitutional process? So, so people are only partially right to consider that Tunisia is a success. So it was success relative to the other countries in the region, right? So if you look at a country like Libya, where we've had conflict now on and off for 10 years, and Yemen now, you know, it's, it's a real catastrophe if you look at those countries, right? So if you're, if that's your benchmark, then yeah, Tunisia is terrific, right? No conflict, right? And actually, you know, at some, you know, definitely there was an increase in civil and political rights and basic freedoms and so on and so forth. So for, if that's the benchmark, then yes, it was a success. But for someone like me, and you know, my overwhelming concern is not um, strictly limited just to civil and political rights. I mean, those are fundamental, obviously, but it has to be about inequality and it has to be about people who are living in the margins of society because that's the reason why things have broken down in the way that they, in the way that they have, right? So, um, so what's been happening since the constitution entered into force is that this, this struggle between different political forces and different institutions has just continued. You know, it continued from 2014 all the way to 2021. And this marginalization and the act of ignoring um, the marginalized poor of the country has continued as well. I mean, they have gotten practically no benefits from all this. They have greater civil and political rights, but that was never their complaint in the beginning anyway. Their complaint was about inequality. It was about being on the margin of society and not having, and not having any relationship with the state. Right? And that still continues today. So when Qais Saeed says that the constitutional model has failed, I don't completely disagree. Uh, you know, I, don't, I don't completely disagree with that analysis. However, the, then the question becomes, well, what has he done and what is he likely to do over the coming period? And will that make things, will that lead to an improvement? So there I actually have no evidence to suggest that 
an improvement is on the cards, at least from, you know, if, if about my underlying concerns, which are once again, inequality and marginalization and so on and so forth. I don't see that as being something that's likely to, to improve over the coming period, because, you know, my understanding of what's happened is that this is just another element of the struggle between, um, you know, these emerging political forces, including Nahda, who want for parliament to be very powerful, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, traditional statists who want for uh, the state to resemble what it is that they're used to, meaning a hyper-presidential system of government where the president just controls an overwhelming amount of decisions that take place in the country. Um, and it's likely, I mean, this is my guess, but I don't really know so far, is I'm like, I'm, I'm, my guess is that we're going to go back to, to that type of arrangement over the coming period, but we'll have to wait and see what ends up happening. Well, you mentioned um, one of the uh, several of the countries that are maybe viewed more as failures. And one of them, I think, is really interesting for your focus on constitutional process. And that's Yemen, where you had this national dialogue process. And you know, why exactly did that fail in your estimation? And, um, you know, what, what was what were the strengths and weaknesses of that relatively inclusive process? Yeah, so um, I mean, it's hard to know exactly why it failed because there's so many reasons that one could point to. And, you know, people could immediately respond and say, well, the reason why it failed is because, you know, there were rebels in the country, meaning the Houthis that were never, um, in, that were never really a part of the process and they were always planning on just taking over the country, right? And so others might answer and say, no, it's not the Houthis, it's others. And you know, the GPC and Ali Abdullah Salah were constantly undermining the process and so on and so forth. And those are probably, you know, those are all probably factors, you know, that you know, based on the assumption that they're true, but, but their conflict and the unwillingness of some parties at least to engage in the, in the process in a meaningful way were definitely problems. However, if, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that a process preordained to fail. You can have parties and political forces that are determined to undermine it, um, but not everything is in their hands. The process can still succeed. Um, so what problems existed within the process that made it even more likely to, to fail? And part of that was basically based on wishful thinking. Mm. There's this, um, you know, this attitude about the dialogue process um, that it was going to be really inclusive and that they're going to take all these wonderful decisions about the future of the country, and uh, that's going to be the basis of a new constitutional arrangement, right? So an immediate problem that comes up is that that type of forum where you have something like, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's 565 or maybe even 656, I can't remember which one it is, but basically hundreds and hundreds of members that are um, engaging with each other and engaging in dialogue over a very long period of time, you know, over a year, about uh, systems of government, individual freedoms, and so on and so forth, they were barely able to make any progress on the federal arrangement. I mean, barely, right? They decided that there should be a federation, but they weren't able to decide in any meaningful way what that federation would look like, right? There was no understanding at all of, for example, what the second chamber would do, how revenues would be allocated, whether or not you'd have a unified um, court system or a federal court system, or you know, you know, or, or police and security. Sometimes none of those discussions even came close to taking place at all. So you, Especially at the end of the, the southern region, yeah, sure, sure, yeah. I mean, you know, these are really fundamental, fundamental questions. So you get to the all the way to the end of the dialogue session, and you have these, you know, one thousand eight hundred decisions that were taken, and a lot of them. You know, I don't want to be disrespectful to my colleagues who participated in this, but you know, and uh, you know, because I have nothing but respect for them, but 
but if you read a lot of those decisions, they're just basically the sorts of things that you could have just guessed that they would have wanted without having the dialogue process at all. There's all these general this, the declarations about freedom and so on and so forth. And all that's great, you know, but it doesn't take you any further to negotiating constitutional dispensation, um, particularly when so much, you know, so many actors in Yemen are armed and willing to use their weapons, right? I mean, this is something that you just can't get around. It's not at all like Tunisia where by and large political forces are peaceful. I mean, in, in a lot of political forces in Yemen are armed and willing to use their weapons and they're bargaining. They want their share of the, of the, of the pie. They definitely want it, right? So if you tell them afterwards that, oh, by the way, you know, we're gonna have a federal arrangement, but we actually don't even know how much you're gonna get or what it's going to look like and so on and so forth. I mean, people are not willing to suspend judgment in that way and just defer to, you know, to a constitutional committee which is not even supposed to be politically representative to take those decisions for them, right? So it was basically, there's a huge amount of wishful thinking and basically like an absence of a fact-based approach. There were so many times during the process where people could have put their foot down and said, wait, hang on, things are really not heading in the right direction. We're not making the type of progress that we should be making. We can't progress to the next stage without, we res without resolving some issues and so on and so forth. This is basically the stubborn insistence that the original plan should be kept to even though it's clearly not working. It's basically kind of, to that extent, the opposite of what happened in Tunisia, where the parties were much more like, much more uh, willing to be flexible. So, you know, there's a lot of things we could talk about. The book is full of, um, of both the case studies and then uh, the second half of the book is, uh, you know, discusses all of these uh, very important and uh, complex issues around constitutionalism. Um, maybe since we only have a few minutes left, I thought maybe I could just ask you about some of the things that uh, kind of come across a lot of the different cases. So, for example, uh, this question of, you know, the kind of chamber that's going to, um, you know, write the Constitution and the whole debate about doing the Constitution first versus doing elections first. Um, can you talk about some of those issues and kind of the lessons that you extract from looking at all these cases? Yeah, sure. So, so this 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 big debate that took place between you know the constitution first or elections first camp, right? And that was a debate that took place in Egypt, and Libya, lots of places, right? And different different countries had different ways of doing it. So, to a certain extent, I think that's you know a big red herring. I don't think that that's the, the right way to look at how a process should take place. First of all, because in a lot of these countries as soon as the uprising took place, it was inevitable that there was going to be an election really, really quickly. I mean, can you imagine in a country like Libya, after 39 years of Gaddafi, you turn around to people and tell them, actually, you know what, no elections, you know? And people wanted to vote, you know, that's just, that's just the way it was, right? And, you know, the more you resisted, the more they would accuse you of foreign meddling, et cetera, et cetera. So there's just no way that uh, an election wasn't gonna take place in a place like Libya. Um, you know, so in my view, the way, the, the proper way of looking at it is that there has to be a balance between um, you know, the need for um, some type of representation, some type of proper representation, the need for some type of electoral mechanism to determine more or less what the relative popular weight is of some of these groups. Because in the absence of an election, of a free and fair election, you really have no idea what, what, what weight these groups have, right? So in, for example, in Yemen, they didn't have an election and some parties were still negotiating on the basis that they were dominant. Right, but we had literally no idea how, if there was an election, what what type of result they would they would get. So you know, having an election is really important, at least in that sense, so that people can have a better idea of popular forces' respective weight. That's one thing. The other thing is that it really needs to be clear in everyone's mind right from the start 
immediately, what, even not just before the elections take place, but as the rules are being drawn up, that it's not right, it's not practical, and it's not desirable to have a constitutional process that's led exclusively by the people who've been elected. The reason why that is, is because um, electoral outcomes are temporary. You know, as we've seen in, you know, in Tunisia, where in 2011, another got close to 40% of the vote. If you were to organize an election now, they probably wouldn't get 10%, right? Um, in Iraq, it's the same. You know, things change a lot, very, very quickly. So to have people who just happen to be in a dominant position today because of some historical quirk, and then suddenly they're going to dictate the constitutional framework for the next couple of generations. I mean, that's, that's really not right. So you definitely need to have some type of balance between you know, the, whoever it is, whatever body has been elected and whatever influence that they're going to be able to play on the constitutional framework. And on the other hand, um, some type of check against that type of power. First of all, because you don't want them to dominate it because they just may be around for one electoral cycle. Um, but second of all, because in, just as I've alluded to a couple of times already now, is that the more you do that, the more you rely on the winners of an election, the more likely, the more likely it is that the constitutional negotiation is going to be exclusively about how they're going to manage their relationships with each other, as opposed to what's going to happen between them and the general population. So by introducing into the process some type of check so that you make sure that people who have in mind the underlying uh, causes of the uprising and the underlying problems that need to be resolved, and also some of the solutions that may be introduced, the more likely you are to have to get to a type of constitutional dispensation that's going to not only make sure that you'll have civil peace between constitutional forces, but that's also going to be able to make sure that the marginalized will have some voice in the state and in, uh, in parliament, and also that the state and its institutions and parliament will have as one of its main objectives to respond to the needs of the marginalized and the poor of the country. Well, that's, that's so interesting. Uh, we've been speaking with Zayed Ali about his new book, Arab Constitutionalism. Uh, Zayed, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks, Mark. Thanks a lot. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we're joined by Marcin Alchamari of the Harvard Kennedy School and the author of new article, Religious Peacebuilding in Iraq, Prospects and Challenges from the Hausa. Uh, Marcin, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. So tell us about this article and uh, what you were trying to accomplish with it. Yeah, of course. Uh, so with this article, the idea is that I've observed for years these immensely powerful Shia clerics in Iraq, but at the same time, they exist in a space that's ripe for peace building because of all the conflict that's ongoing in Iraq. And I've always wondered about both their capacity to engage in peace building, but also if they had done so, what kind of experience, what kind of tools, and how do they really compare to other peace builders, um, especially religious ones in other contexts. So as some of you may know, my dissertation was about the role of clerics and anti-government protest in Iraq. So it was a very natural and easy transition to talk to them about, um, in some ways, the other side of the coin, which is peace building rather than protest, um, and talking to them about it, particularly in the context of post-2003, mm -hmm. in which conditions really, really changed for them. And by that, I mean, uh, prior to 2003, you definitely had a lot of conflict in Iraq. I mean, decades of endless war, but you also had a state that severely oppressed Shia clerics. So they really weren't able to reach up to their potential. Mm 
But after 2003, they really became both free to do whatever they want, but also associated with one of the more powerful ethno-religious groups in the country. So they became uh, sources of authority, both for their own community, but also politically powerful at the general national level at a time when, like I said, there is so much conflict. And it really was the perfect time for them to engage in peace building if they so chose to, uh, chose to do. So I wrote an article exploring if they'd done this and how they'd done this and what tools they have to be able to be peace builders. Now, for those who aren't as familiar, could you just tell us a little bit about the Hausa, the clerical community, and uh, the history that they're bringing to bear here? Yeah, of course. So I'm completely biased on this, but I think they're one of the most fascinating institutions in the world. And, and like I said, I'm completely biased on this. So I'm, I'm sure there's many fascinating institutions, but I think they're amazing because they're a very old institution. I mean, they'll claim to be a thousand years old. Others will claim they're 200 years old, but regardless, it's a centuries old institution that is not a university, not anything that's really recognized by any entity, but one that has been able to preserve itself for years under conditions that have been very antagonistic. And that's just the background. What it actually is, it's really a set of clerics, a set of seminaries, of schools, of libraries, of cleric offices, and they all are networked um, to produce these clerics who exist in this hierarchy, who have tremendous social power because within Shiism, elite clerics can actually tell their adherents what to do and what not to do. So they have this mobilizing power that not every cleric has. Um, so maybe some of your listeners uh, are aware of the very famous fatwa that was issued after ISIS went into Iraq by Grand Ayatollah Sistani, who was the head of this institution, mm -hmm. to mobilize people to fight ISIS. And it, you know, it turned into these paramilitary groups, whether on purpose or inadvertently is beyond the point, but he was able to mobilize people uh, through a statement. And really the house of the set of institutions, the set of schools and seminaries, creates these clerics, these immensely powerful figures uh, that have power to move their adherents, not only within Iraq, but they have millions of adherents outside of Iraq as well. Now, before we get into your actual argument, uh, could you talk a little bit about the research that you did? Because I think it's quite unique. Yeah, so the research was basically a lot of ethnographic fieldwork within the Hausa itself. So I spent a few months over the course of several years going to the cities of Karbala and the city of Najaf uh, in Iraq. And these cities are the holy sites in Iraq in which the Hausa really exists. And I went there and I attended some classes. I interviewed clerics. I generally observed what was going on. I went to archives that the clerics had kept. And these are fascinating archives. You know, they would have magazines of protests from the 1920s that they had managed to keep safe throughout years. Um, and throughout the times in which the state was trying to really erase these, these histories of clerical involvement, they still managed to keep these records. So these very interesting libraries. And I spoke to students, I spoke to international students from places as you know, far flung as Senegal and Indonesia who had come to the Hausa to study, as well as speaking to people who are really high ranking in the, in the Hausa. So the grand marjas who are as you know, high as it gets in the Hausa. And I spoke with them about so many different things. I mean, at the time I was 
mainly interested in participation in protests and their views towards politics, but we also spoke about things like um, international law, we spoke about things like women's rights, we spoke about uh, their own personal experiences in the Hausa, how they had gone through it. Uh, so it was very interesting field work. It was very draining field work because it really required me to. So as you know, everyone who speaks Arabic will know there's a million different vocabularies to have and ways to speak. And it really required me to develop this um, this non-casual way of speaking uh, that was very- vocabulary. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, that's, that's fascinating. So. Now, in terms of this article itself, then, um, let's walk, walk us through the argument and kind of what you found um, in terms of answering the questions that you raised. Okay, so if you can remember what I said in the beginning, which is that the world really changed for the Hausa in 2003, that's really the core point where my argument builds. You'd gone through from a world that is basically one in which they were oppressed and had no means to function or to do anything, the state was constantly observing them. And you know, one of the things I did in my work was to look at the Bath archives at Stanford, at Hoover, and, and see exactly how there was monitoring of these clerics. So from a heavily policed environment to one in, in which suddenly you are basically one of the most powerful players in the country, free to do whatever you want. Now, at first, this was amazing for them, right? They could do anything they wanted. They were respected. They were valued. But then what started to happen is, in that period before 2003, they had formed inadvertently relationships with what later became the Shia Islamist parties that ruled Iraq after 2003. And because of that association that had formed in the past, and because of the poor performance of these parties after 2003, and how much they were associated with uh, misappropriation of funds, with corruption, with ill governance, they began to suffer, clerics began to suffer for their association with Islamist parties. And so the idea that clerics become involved in politics became something that Iraqis didn't really want to hear and that they were opposed to. And you can actually see this rhetoric increasing slowly over time across different protest movements from 2011 to 2015 to the really big one in 2019 we saw, in which slowly people began to demand more and more of a secular state and less religious involvement in the state. And this creates a big problem for peace building in Iraq because Shia clerics in Iraq have a lot of power to tell people to, for example, you know, very, very basically not be sectarian, protect your neighbors. Um, you know, very famously in the, um, in the 1960s, one of the Grand Ayatollahs and Grand Ayatollah Mohsen al-Hakim had issued one of these fatwas to tell uh, his, his adherence that it wasn't Islamically permissible for them to join uh, any war that was against the Kurds to kill the Kurds in Iraq. So there, after 2003, we had all these moments of conflict in which more and more they had the opportunity to come out against violence and they were needed to patch up these communities. But they faced two problems in being able to do this. First, there was an issue of will where the clerics who were most well posed to actually recognize this need and act on it tended to be younger ones without the high qualifications that are required 
to actually reform the doctrine or create some kind of, of a theological basis um, and enshrine it for peace building in a very direct way. And the other problem they faced is any participation in politics became rejected by the public. So they'd have to do peace building without politics, which in theory sounds very possible, but it's actually much harder than you think, uh, particularly in a country like Iraq, where the two are actually much more enmeshed than you, you would. And you define peace building here specifically in terms of reconciliation between communities. Yes, it's about restorative rather than retributive justice is the definition that I adopt. So that seems to pose a particular problem in terms of your second point about uh, their association with particular Shia parties. Exactly. It's, it, it creates a problem where whatever they want to do, they have this past of being associated to possibly the source of the problem. And so what does this mean then for, uh, you know, kind of as you think about uh, the evolution of the role of the house of the Shia clerics within this Iraqi state, um, you know, what are the implications of this research? Well, the important thing to remember here is that the time period since 2003 in a person's lifetime seems very long, but for an institution as old as the Hausa, it actually is quite short. So I actually think they're going through a period of adaption uh, whereby the, sorry, a period of adaptation, whereby the end of it, you will actually see more formalized peace building occur and be initiated by the Hausa. And the reason I say this is because I see it bubbling up on the surface. Um, and I see it slowly becoming something that's not just spearheaded by younger clerics, but younger clerics are starting more and more to find a way mm -hmm. to get older clerics involved or get their approval. And for me, it really culminated when you saw the Pope's visit and his meeting with Grand Ayatollah Sistani, because as you know, the Vatican is very much you know, part of this peace building uh, narrative and has mm -hmm. the toolkit and you know, ha has, has the vocabulary for it and all these things that are, that are needed to engage in it. And when he reached out to the Hausa in Nejef, I think it created that link. And, you know, I mean, it, in, in Iraq, right after you saw the prime minister declare a day of national dialogue and reconciliation and all these things, um, and seeing them heavily tied to religion, I think we're setting the ground for it. And I do think that in future years, we'll see more direct involvement of clerics in religious peace building in these very traditional and defined ways. Well, this has been really, really interesting. Uh, uh, we've been speaking with uh, Marcin Al-Shamari uh, from the Harder Kennedy School. Uh, Marcin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for letting me discuss one of my favorite topics. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's Topics segment, we're joined by James Shires at the Institute for Security and Global Affairs at Leiden University, the author of the forthcoming book, Politics of Cybersecurity in the Middle East. Uh, James, thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Mark. So, James, you helped me put together this workshop that ran uh, uh, earlier this year, and we released the publication, Digital Activism and Authoritarian Adaptation in the Middle East, that we did with uh, uh, the Institute at Stanford University. Um, and this topic of digital authoritarianism runs through a lot of the you know, discussion about cyber politics in the Middle East these days. Can you tell us a little bit about your research on this and uh, kind of what we should be knowing about these trends towards digital authoritarianism? Sure. So as you say, digital authoritarianism is increasingly a buzzword that we're seeing on the rise 
both in media coverage of protests in the Middle East and uh, the ongoing conflicts there, but it's also gaining serious academic traction as well. And people are putting a lot of thought into what exactly digital authoritarianism means and how we can really think about it in a way that's useful to understand the politics of the region. My take on it is really that we can see it in two forms. One is this change from seeing cyberspace or the internet or the online digital public sphere as going from something that is free and open and everyone can access and people can say what they want to being something that is much more constrained, much more controlled by governments, much more delineated, and the governments are deciding what can go online and what can't. So in that way, authoritarianism is moving digital. It's going online, it's going into cyberspace. But the other aspect of digital authoritarianism is equally important. It's actually governments, especially autocratic ones, using digital tools in traditional forms of repression. So combining things like spyware and surveillance with intimidation, with repression, with uh, locking up activists, journalists, and dissidents in order to maintain the regime control. So we're seeing digital authoritarianism both as going online, but also bringing the online tools into classic forms of repression that have been studied in political science for a long time now. You mentioned the spyware, and that's one thing which has gotten a lot of attention in the media. Human rights organizations have been paying attention to it. Can you tell us a little bit about what this spyware is and does and how it is being used now by these Middle Eastern governments? Sure. So spyware is also essentially known as access as a service. What it does is there's lots of private companies out there um, from a variety of states who are selling uh, the ability to get access to phones to governments. Um, once they have access to people's devices and their phones, they can read emails, they can eavesdrop on conversations, and they can also essentially look at whatever you're looking at. Right? So they have full access. You're owned in the sort of hacking uh, sense of the word. Now, this is important because governments really want access to this technology because they can use it for genuine national security purposes. They can try and uh, fight crime and uh, identify terrorism terrorism with it, but they can also use it to crack down on political opposition or people that they're worried about uh, in terms of free speech and journalism. And we've especially seen this in the Middle East. The classic example most recently is the Israeli company NSO Group, whose uh, software has been sold to governments across the region, especially in the Gulf states, but um, has also been sold wo worldwide as well. And there it has been used in multiple violations of human rights, and it's been connected to uh, wider repressive activities. It's important to remember, though, this is not the first time this has happened. NSO Group is the current flavor of the month, as it were, but this has been going on for a long time. We can go back uh, almost a decade to just after the Arab Spring, when other companies, not Israeli, but European ones and American ones, were selling similar kinds of tools. This is a long-running problem, and it's really difficult to stop. And so in terms of the impact of this surveillance, uh, there have been all kinds of reports out there about various politicians that have been spied upon. And I think most famously, the, um, the, uh, the information that this was used to monitor the, the equipment of Jamal Khashoggi. And that, I think that was something that really galvanized a lot of this public attention. Yeah, and so in the um, Khashoggi case, uh, this is one where it's really leaked out bit by bit. Um, initially, uh, the reports were around uh, Khashoggi's contacts, um, a dissident in Canada, and then more recent revelations suggest that his family were also monitored. So there definitely appears to have been a real web of surveillance around Khashoggi due to his online campaigning and activities before his murder.
Now, switching away from the, the spyware a little bit, because that gets, um, I think, many of the headlines, and deservedly so, but one of the points that you make in your own work is that there's much broader and deeper infrastructures here which go into creating this kind of digital environment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the spyware is a really obvious example because it sort of uh, hacks into phones, right? It tries to um, bypass any security protections and it does so surreptitiously, right? Without the user knowing. But actually, there's a lots of, lot of kinds of surveillance that are used in digital authoritarianism that are much more widespread, that actually exist around us at an infrastructural level. So if you're monitoring communications at a nationwide level, whatever's going on the internet in and out of a country, you're trying to filter those communications, you're using new technologies to filter to um, and censor certain kinds of traffic, whether it's a particular app or to a particular website, these kinds of things are much more ingrained in the societies we live in, and they're much harder to point out as saying, hey, this is a clear violation like the spyware. And then in some of the more extreme cases, you have states that are actually setting up their own national internets. Indeed. And um, so in the Iranian case, for example, there's been a real effort to centralize control of the internet, not in uh, government organization necessarily, but also through ISPs. And it's important to remember that uh, these kind of public-private partnerships that occur not only in the Middle East, but more broadly, more broadly, are really crucial in government control of the internet. They have to work with telecoms providers, with internet service providers, and also with companies, there's not very many of them, who are selling the kind of technologies that let them do this filtering, do this censorship, and this monitoring. And then in some cases, uh, you have this, uh, what uh, you, you might almost think of as a Chinese model, where you're seeing the use of all kinds of um, not exactly surveillance technologies, but kind of full-scale monitoring of life through the, through the digital traces. Yeah, it's interesting because the uh, Chinese model for a while was seen as a cheap sort of undercutter for the Western, in quotation marks, kind of technologies that were top of the market. Um, and people said, well, there's a kind of trade-off there. On one hand, you get this access to cheap technology. But on the other hand, you have to buy in to sending your data to China where you don't know what's going to happen to it. Actually, the reverse is happening where the Chinese approach to really uh, gathering a lot of data, making sure that there's strict controls on users, on citizens, is one that itself is attractive for export as well as the technologies themselves. So you find a real meeting of minds between the customers and the purveyors of these technologies, especially in the relationships between China and governments in the Middle East. You think about some of the technologies, facial recognition, um, these kind of the, the social index type of thing, and it seems that you could achieve an awful lot of social control even without what we would identify as repression. Indeed, and this is, uh, to put it into a bit of context, one of the uh, dangerous undercurrents of the sort of smart city discourse that we see a lot, especially in the Gulf states, right? You see these big flashy projects saying, we're going to revolutionize communication, we're gonna revolutionize um, the way that people work and live in big cities. They're gonna be, have things that are much more convenient. It's gonna be much safer. The downside of that is the question of data and privacy. Where does the data go? who has access to it, how do governments use that data. And so these kinds of things are really uh, embedded into the projects of 
urban living that are maybe more advanced in the Gulf than they are almost anywhere else in the world. Now, another part of this that gets a lot of attention of digital authoritarianism is uh, what, what you mentioned earlier, the attempts to shape public discourse and in many ways to seize control over the public sphere through the use of bots, through the use of targeted repression, and really kind of changing the nature of online discourse, which is in many ways public discourse now. Indeed, the majority of uh, populations in the Middle East are really going online for news, for entertainment, uh, for political opinion, and generally for social interaction, more so than ever uh, in pandemic times. And so the ability to influence these conversations is something that governments have increasingly recognized is an important part of their uh, national security, right? They see it as a um, regime stability question, especially after not only the Arab Spring uh, a decade ago, but the constant um, more recent protests across the region. These are questions of stability for regional governments, and they really want to be able to uh, have a close handle on social media in particular in order to spot where things are coming from and crack down on it, it if necessary. Now, it's important to say that bots are a real problem, inauthentic behavior, the sort of um, trolls and things like that, but actually a lot of it is corralling real people influences to push a certain narrative. And so the lines between bots and real people, between propaganda and a merely government-supported narrative are really difficult to uh, pick apart. And, you know, and this really has changed the nature of it. I, I remember when I was doing my research years ago, there was this sense of, the, of being able to look at Twitter or Facebook and seeing some kind of relatively authentic uh, discussions and, and debates. And these days, I, I wouldn't really look at, uh, at these online spaces as markers of public opinion at all, uh, given how thoroughly infiltrated they are by state narratives, by political act actors and activists. It's become much more of like a, a kind of a, I don't know, a discursive battlefield than any kind of unmediated public sphere. Certainly. And we've got to really remember that who, who is fighting this battlefield you know, metaphorically, it is people who are really um, essentially sticking their neck out online if they're calling out human rights violations or any other kind of government corruption, right? If you do that on social media at the moment, that really brings down quite a lot of attention on you, and it can also translate into risks offline as well as pressure online. So these kinds of things are increasingly risky. It's not a free space. People can uh, engage in open debate. It's not an uh, clear online public sphere uh, to use that term. And, and I think you make a really good point there that we just really do have to remember who exactly is the weak in this situation, who's vulnerable. Um, and because you could say that everyone is equally on, you know, on this playing field, but we know that's not the case. Go so ahead. it's not just a battle between governments on one side and individuals or activists on the other. There's third parties here that are often corporate, such as the social media platforms. Uh, they would like us to believe they're neutral and uh, they merely provide the basis for what's going on. But when they engage in content moderation, they take a stand. Um, they say this is permitted on the platform, this is not. And those guidelines are highly contested. Often the platforms don't have the right resources or they don't want to engage in this moderation in a, the kind of way that really facilitates uh, real public debate. The other kind of uh, corporate players that are really worth recognizing are things like lobbying companies, right? Things that uh, companies that 
engage in marketing and communications professionally and really help governments to do that online as well. They can't be forgotten in this uh, study. In the Stanford collection, one of the points made by a number of the contributors was the, um, the, the novelty of this active content moderation and the way that, as you say, the, the, the Twitters, the, the YouTubes, the, all of these online providers have actually become actors in their own right. And that is something which is quite new in this environment. It's, yeah, so content moderation is clearly uh, a really hot topic. It's become much more political. It was always a political decision, but platforms were able to pretend to be neutral for quite a long time. Now they can't escape it. So they have to put the resources in to doing content moderation, and then they find that they're um, on one side or on the other. And often at the end of the day, it comes down to commercial imperatives. Uh, these are companies, uh, after all, they're working, of course, with governments around the world, but their overall aim is to increase or maintain their user base. And they'll do whatever that it takes to make, make that happen. Yeah, it was most uh, clearly prominent during the recent uh, struggles between uh, Israel and Palestinians in uh, East Jerusalem, when Palestinians were widely complaining about uh, the large-scale removal of their content from places like Instagram and uh, Facebook and, and Twitter. Um, but as you as you pointed out, um, this has happened elsewhere as well. There are many Middle Eastern governments, like Turkey, for example, that have been quite you know quite active in trying to get down uh, content which they consider to be subversive. Indeed, and these governments you know try a multi like multiple different routes in order to get this um, uh, kind of action done. So they will submit official requests. These platforms you know, have the ability to do that. They'll try and uh, filter and censor, as we talked about earlier, using their own technologies. But for example, in a uh, quite extreme case, there was a report of a, a Saudi insider in Twitter specifically taking down um, or monitoring particular uh, accounts that they were concerned about. And so that's someone in the company who's reporting back to a, another government. Right? That's um, beyond the, uh, far beyond the official channels. So I guess the last question is that, you know, people looking at the, the scale and the scope of this digital authoritarianism uh, might be forgiven for feeling kind of hopeless about the whole thing, that as the technology uh, it, it is in the hands of these authoritarian users, um, authoritarian regimes, that maybe this is just like a one-way path towards full-scale repression. Um, do, do you agree with that? Or do you see signs that this might be something more cyclical, where the digital authoritarianism might contain the seeds of its own challenges? Yeah, I do have some optimism. I think that's why we were right to start with the idea of digital activism as the forefront of this movement. Because Activism, political debate, political action, it's always going to be creative. It's going to uh, subvert, it's going to get around whatever constraints are in place in order to ensure people can express their views. You see this in example, to take an example from outside the Middle East, in China more than anywhere else, where really sophisticated surveillance means that uh, people are using different kinds of code and images to really get their message across. And so there will be creativity, there will be resistance, there will be change, and this will be facilitated by digital technology. So I think what we're seeing is the, um, the sort of downside of an over-optimistic wave about what could be done with digital technologies. That's been corralled somewhat, that's been uh, tempered somewhat, but there's still space for debate and action and campaign. 
Well, that's great. We've been speaking with uh, James Shires of uh, Leiden University and author of the forthcoming book, Politics of Cybersecurity in the Middle East. James, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.